Welcome to the Prime Domino Podcast, presented by Rob Worth, consultant to public sector chief executives and author of the book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs. You can request a free copy of the book at www.beatthecuts.co.uk. And here's Rob Worth. Hello, and in this episode, I interview John Stewart, the shared chief executive of Havent and East Hants Citizens Advice Bureau, and I ask him about the project to radically redesign advice services in his area and find out what he thinks the prime domino is. Here's my interview with John. Thanks, John, for agreeing to take part in uh, this uh, discussion. Can I start by asking you a bit about your background and what led you to be become the, the CEO of Havent and East Hants Citizens Advice Bureau? Okay, I have a 30-year had a 30-year career in the public sector, in corporate management, trained as an accountant and moved into financial management and then into project management, mainly new systems and the beginning of transformation work. And I undertook that mainly with two large local authorities, county councils. I then moved into business improvements, consultancy work, mainly London-based, but across the South East and the Midlands, working on, again, business systems and transformation work. Whilst doing that work, I did undertake one project with a CAB involvement, and that was the first time I'd come across CABs, and I liked the look of them and what they were doing. And then, a short while after, an opportunity came up for an employed role with Haven't CAB and Haven't had an interesting background of difficult operating environment and some management failures that made it a perfect candidate to undertake a business improvement exercise on. So to complement my consultancy work I took on this paid role as CEO but on a business improvement mission. Okay. Can you tell us a little about the Bureau? What do they do for the public? What sort of advice do they give? Okay, they are an advice-giving organisation. Charitable companies, by and large, affiliated to, almost on a franchise-type basis, with Citizens Advice, which is the national brand, very well recognised. So they are local advice-giving operations. In the 80s, they were largely helping with debt advice, and that reappeared quite heavily in the 90s with more debt advice, very dominant activity, but supported by work on benefits, employment, housing, relationships, those sorts of issues. And then in more recent years, benefits has become a, the largest issue for them to address. So it's a very reactive operation based on how the economy is and what the government is aiming to achieve. Okay, and more recently we've been working on the Vision 2020 project. Can you tell us a little about where that came from? Two years ago, having largely turned, haven't CAB run from failing organisation to, I would describe, thriving, um, and we had independent audits that actually assessed us as um, having really good working practices and some best practice nationally. So having turned that round... Um, I was parachuted in as East Hampshire CAB chief exec, neighbouring local authority, to do a sort of similar recovery job there. 
And at the time of arrival, coincidentally, there was a, a national initiative led by the Cabinet Office, supported by the big lottery for what they call advice service transition funding, where the government were allocating funds out to projects for pretty much transforming, redesigning advice services in local regions. So my first task as a shared CEO of those two CABs was to submit and win a bid for a transformation project which we called 2020 Vision for Advice. And that was to fundamentally dissect and dismantle the existing advice service operation and reconstruct it fit for purpose, taking in the whole of the territories advice requirements the community needs and to build something that was economical, cost less because of public sector funding reductions, but could deliver more because it would be better tuned into what the community needed to be delivered. Okay. Would it be fair to say the main driver of that was funding reductions in the future? Yes, the CABs generally through the country are half to two-thirds funded by local authorities and local authorities have seen dramatic funding reductions in grant from government since 2010. Most of them have lost in the order of 40% of their grants and by default that has often led to similar reductions to the size of the grants given to local CABs. So on that basis we had to find a way of preserving if not improving the advice services but with an obvious need to, to run them with less money. So do you think there's a genuine threat that CABs in this area and perhaps across the country might not even exist? There is a threat. Um, some, local, some local authorities have withdrawn all of their funding to CABs and some CABs have disappeared. Others have had to significantly cut back and reduce their operation and may well not be delivering anything like what their communities need from them. Here in the local area, East Hampshire had cut their funding by roughly a third, Haven't had not cut the funding, but it was coming from a lower level, a lower base anyway. So the threat was there of cuts and even a further 10 or 20% cut, particularly a sort of salami slicing type cut, would be really damaging for our operation. So it was almost anticipating future cuts and setting up something that would be more resilient with less money. Okay, so looking out into the future and saying, yep, what, very much so. what do we need to do now in order to prepare for the, what's yep. coming? And the funding came from Big Lottery Fund and within conjunction with the Cabinet Office. What do you think they wanted to see from the projects that they funded? Right. I'll, I'll ask you about what you wanted to achieve in a sec, but what, okay. do you think, what do you think they wanted to achieve? Cabinet Office was very clear. There was a letter from the then Minister of Civil Society Nick Hurd, MP, and in a two-page letter he made it very clear that he was looking for transformation and redesign to understand better what communities needed, to establish improved partnerships so that the different advice organisations or organisations involved in advice could be better joined up and more effective in their operations. Community needs would be better met by knowing what their needs were, so some forward-looking work required. And behind all of that was the fact that the government had increasingly given funding to the advice sector in previous years, which had been a prop to make up deficits from local authority funding. And the minister was quite categoric that 
this larger amount of funding was the last injection of funding in the advice sector and therefore had to be used to design something fit for purpose for the next few years. Okay, so they were saying, here's some money, you need to fix yourself. Yeah. Such that to prepare for a lower yep. funding environment and there's no more money after this, is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely, that was abundantly clear, yes. Okay. And if you can kind of transport yourself back to war before the start of the project, what did, what did you want to see different out of this? How did you see the result of the project? The timing was perfect because I had just become CEO of a second CAB and therefore the, the landscape was bigger, there was more potential... I had an opportunity at that point to look at the design of advice across two local authority areas and those two local authority areas were working very effectively together as local authorities with shared management and shared back offices. So as a minimum I could see that being replicated in the CAB activities in in those two local authority areas. So I had to undertake redesign and improvement work myself and here was an opportunity to do that on you know, quite a significantly funded basis. Okay, how did you get started? So there's a bid process, which was via Big Lottery. Not an easy bidding process because Big Lottery, for right or wrong reasons, used a reaching communities funding template for the bidding process that meant that bid success would be very heavily dependent on outcomes, client-related outcomes, in the two-year period. And that was very much in conflict with what the Cabinet Office had given their funding for, which was not to look at the next two years and client delivery outcomes in that period, but to very much focus on the longer term and a, a bigger redesign. So that produced immediate conflict on the bid. Clearly, if the criteria for the Cabinet Office had been followed alone, the bid would not have succeeded with the big lottery with their other criteria. So a bid process emerged where we would actually have two strands. Um, one strand would be the redesign transformation work to meet the cabinet remit and our own local remit. But another strand would, was designed to look at improving relatively short-term client services and invest in infrastructure and providing resources that would have immediate impact on the advice services locally. So the two-strand bid was worked up and submitted and successful. What was the first kind of practical thing on the ground that happened? Well, winning the money was obviously much easier in a sense than you know what it entailed delivering. It was a short time scale. Um, as a maximum, the project could have been 24 months long in practice. By the time we'd been awarded funding and got a project plan underway and recruited a project manager um, that took the first three months or so of the project so immediately we were dealing with a less than two-year period to look at a major transformation exercise and that would have compromised many transformation projects the, the shortness of the the project duration and the, the funding available so we had to be quite smart in how we designed the project to make sure that we stood a chance of achieving what we locally needed out of it in the timescales we were given. So we had a very careful design up front of the project, project deliverables and the project style that influenced us on how we recruited a project manager and the consultancy that was acquired to support the project. 
You've decided to put together a, a board. Tell me, tell me about the board. Right, the board, we called it an enabling board. The structure of the project was a project manager working with a, a small team of researchers mainly, and some of my time as the sort of, if you like, a project director type role. The buying in of some consultancy services to give us skills, direction and sort of traction to make the project achieve what we were aiming to deliver. And the approach was with those building blocks in place that we needed something quite fast moving and agile using the accepted term as a way of working. And that needed to be structured, but in a a light active environment. And, And we chose an enabling board approach with a representative of each of the CABs on and then a representative from our partner organizations. And we chose our partners quite carefully Um, We chose large-ish partners, in fact all of them larger than ourselves, um, but those that were highly influential in advice services themselves or the funding of advice services in the territory of East Hampton Havant. Okay, and that included local councils and the DWP? Housing organisations and CAB reps. Yeah. So it's all, all the kind of organisations that people coming to for advice might have might need to deal with or have already dealt with in yes. some way. Yes, the uh, sort of exception to that was health, um, who were clearly an area that the project soon addressed. There was a need to draw into the project as well, so uh, an offer was extended to draw in health after the initial board was set up. Yeah. So was the idea that you were trying to look beyond just the internal workings of the bureau and see how you fit into the wider system of very much ad- so advice? and services. Yeah, very much so. Going back to the project bids, the two strands, as I said, one strand was very much big lottery focused to deliver outcomes and client deliverables. So that was very sort of inward looking, developing CAB services and activities. So that was sort of external, but the project redesign relied on external relationships and looking very much beyond the CAB environment and looking at advice across the the landscape. And we also did some research and some survey work. Tell me about that and why that was important. Yeah, that was very much our starting point. Win the bid, recruit a team, recruit consultancy, establish a board. The very next thing we needed was evidence to determine next steps. So there was some serious work to to gain that evidence and to do that we undertook what became known as a client insight survey which was the largest piece of work we've ever undertaken um, and involved 2,000 responses from clients and staff to identify client need, client demand and how we would engage with clients. Right, to understand who was coming, what advice they needed and who they'd interacted with before and how you could help them in the future. Yes, and and a sort of understanding of the community needs and getting evidence beyond our client base as to what the community was likely to need in the way of advice moving forward. What did you find out? We were surprised with some of the findings. Um, Most of the findings reinforced what we already knew and believed that the two local authority areas we were looking after in terms of advice had varying needs across them. Different communities had different needs and the emphasis was different. Different age categories had different needs and of course the financial status of people was also a factor and it was easy to break down categories into young 
young families and older people, all with differing advice needs. The surprise was how much a factor health and well-being was in the need for advice and the client's perspective really linked health, well-being and advice very much together. Right. Showed you something you didn't already know about the underlying causes of, or many of the underlying causes of why people eventually turned up to the Bureau to ask for advice. Yeah, I think we had to have been surprised at how health featured so strongly on the agenda. Okay. It's a real kind of valuable valuable new insight from from asking the clients what, what what the underlying causes were. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just kind of skipping forward a little bit, you've got some prototypes Part of the work that we did together was to say that you need to learn fast and to not have big long project plans and to do things that are going to take a long time to implement only, only to find that they're not valuable. So I know that you've got three prototypes just about to come live in the next, in the next few weeks. Right, okay. I think that was valuable advice and we would, if we'd gone into a traditional project approach with, you know, large-scale research and project initiation documentation, we would have been really slow starting and there would have been a serious risk that nothing would have been fundamentally achieved. So we moved very fast with the results of the client survey. It was giving us strong evidence that advice needed to be dealt with in three different ways across our community. We needed to help people better from a distance. People, clients, wanted to deal with us by phone and by online methods. And although we had some facilities of that nature in place, it was quite clear that we could take a much greater volume of client need that way. That's a very economical, effective way of supporting clients from a distance. And that's one of our project prongs is to commence a a small call centre, contact centre operation, should I say, that will deliver those modern tools for interaction with clients from a distance. That may reduce the need for face-to-face, early days to tell yet, but our clients were very clear that they needed face-to-face facilities as well. A good proportion of people liked the bureau concept that we operated with um, bureaus available to the public to drop in and get help when they needed it. But there was a real concern that our bureau locations and the, the style of our bureau, very old-fashioned term anyway, um, was not really fit for purpose in the modern day. So we we really invested some time in establishing what and how clients would like to engage with us on a face-to-face basis. And it was clear they wanted us in high street locations, in a modern, inviting environment, that they could just step off the street, street and visit us with whatever questions and issues they had. So we've utilised that insight and we're very clearly focused on moving towards library, community centre, GP practice type facilities where we can offer modern engaging services in the environment that people want to receive them. Right. That's the second strand. And then the third area was there is a proportion of the population that distance help won't really solve their problems. Neither will just drop in casually for face-to-face support. There are individuals with significant needs and multiple issues, complex needs, that need what I would call casework support, and that is ongoing, regular work, a a string of meetings and activities required to resolve their problems, 
And to progress those problems to a good resolution means several organisations probably working together to solve those issues. So our caseworkers really need to be tuned in to working with clients or even families in some situations and working very effectively with the organisations involved with those issues to get that early resolution and work with our partners is revealing that they want to work that way as well and we have an opportunity to try something really different in terms of casework to have a a different operating relationship that we work for our clients but we work on behalf of our clients with our partner organisations in a much more effective way. So that's a third area where we'll trial something. In all those cases, those three projects, prototypes, we are open to change. We've got to react quickly if things work well or don't work well and be prepared to to mould and shape those activities quite quickly, take feedback, learn, change and evolve again. Hmm. So get something into place fast, see how it's going and adjust as you, as you yep. move along. Very rapid start and then almost design in, in progress. Right. Yeah. Of course, sounds great. And, and then those aren't started yet, so maybe, maybe there's a part two to this. We could see how, there it, is. how it all went. Yes, that we're recruiting staff for those roles as we speak. What obstacles have you faced in progressing the project or doing it in that way? The big lottery criteria has been an obstacle in that they required a whole series of indicators relating to throughputs and outcomes that needed to be achieved during the life of the project. So when, so when you say throughputs, you mean like so the number of clients who you see, you see each month? Or yeah, very much that sort of an indicator. And our project is very much geared up to delivering something by the end of the project rather than during. So it, it would be premature to try and make too many changes that impact on client throughputs too quickly. So and, I, and I suppose also the other thing is that, say you did more prevention or preventative work, actually you might see the time spent with clients or the number of people coming through your door um, fall as a, as a result of that. On, on the other hand, if you do more um, awareness raising work, so people know about you more, that would, that would raise numbers. So you could be yeah. doing, you could be, numbers could be falling for one reason, but raising for another True. reason. And so you wouldn't, a change in numbers wouldn't necessarily tell you anything unless, no. you, knew, unless you knew the reasons why, the underlying reasons. Very much. It's sort of too crude a, a yardstick. And if you are looking at redesign and transformation, surely it is all about what you're creating over a longer term rather than this very short-sighted approach. So that has been an obstacle, but um, we continue to work with Big Lottery and we hope we can find middle ground on that that doesn't prevent our, the, the more radical side of the project developing according to plan. So that's been one aspect. Another aspect clearly has been the sort of communication and engagement with our teams. We have approaching 200 staff and volunteer across our territory and yet many of them are volunteers and have volunteered for a very traditional CAB service and several of our areas of development are moving away from traditional and yeah that it's quite a task to carry the whole team with us on those changes. I think I had the benefit of their trust, which I think was probably one very important factor from the outset. My two board of directors for each CAB had that trust in me to sort of deliver through this agenda. So I think that's probably one area where that has compensated for some of the sort of communication development change issues that I've encountered. So I think they are probably the 
the, those two areas are the biggest tests that we've encountered through the project. Okay. Part of the quest for this podcast is to find this elusive prime domino. What's the, what's the thing that a chief executive should do first in order to affect transformational change, which is what you're trying to do here? Do you think there is a prime domino? And if so, what might it be? I think trust is in there very high up and it is about and I put sort of team perceptions very much alongside that so so I think it's a combination of those two aspects I think the trust area is key um, because you're trying to change an organization and some of the long-held values you are challenging and they're very experienced knowledgeable capable individuals with a lot of experience and yeah, coming along with new ideas and yeah, there's a lot of challenge in that and you will not succeed with just driving through change relentlessly. Yeah, there'll be a lot of casualties and you risk failure if you just try and drive through that change. So you've got to rely on, and in my case, it, you know, I've possibly run this very much alone in my um, CEO role. So it's been driven from the top but I have had to rely on them believing that I can deliver and preserve and sustain the service that yeah, they are working, working with. So I think that's been a very important part of helping me progress quite challenging circumstances and getting support and good shared working along the way. A similar issue really with the, the team perspective that amongst the team there would always be those that are going to struggle with change and it's how you deal with change with those individuals. And there's an interesting work that was done in the medical world where uh, there's a report that actually assessed people as being young or old in their outlook. And young people generally are more visionary and forward-looking and open and able to explore and experiment. And older people, very generalistically, are more closed, narrower, their minds are made up and they're not open to the extent of change. And in an organisation, you can have young and old people. They're not physically young or old, but they have that young or old outlook. And you can change their outlook by how you deal with them and how you work with them. And in the medical experiment, they found that young people could, if you, if they had a serious illness, um, that would change them into sort of an old person mentality. Right. And similarly, old people, some of them had a very young mentality and it was changeable. You could influence it. So in the message that came through with this project, if we had said while running out of money will be closed down if we don't change, it's all doom and gloom. I don't think we would have got the buy-in and the engagement, but the message has been a very, dare I say, young message. We're gonna change ahead of the curve. It's a financially challenging environment, but we're going to transform ourselves and make ourselves fit for purpose and be ready for pressures as they come along. And it's a very positive message. It's about sustainability and actually growing services, better services for our clients. And that's a very positive message. And that has probably, hopefully, influenced many of the team that would have been much more negative. So the the pitch has been one of finding success and making a successful organisation. I suspect that message of better services is one that will resonate because most of your advisors are volunteers, aren't they? Yes. So they 
as an in, already an intrinsic want to do something for the fellow man, for the community. And I think it's my experience in the public sector generally that when you start to tap into people's intrinsic need or want to help others and to be, do good work and to help the community, then that's a kind of natural mm. natural well of enthusiasm that you can tap yes. into. Yes, yeah. and, and doubly so in, in, yeah. vol- in voluntary services. Yeah, yeah. but with the, yeah, voluntary teams, you have got to deal with them differently because you know, they're driven by different values and you haven't got the same control or influence over them as you have over a paid workforce. So if you do have a clunky message or badly managed change, then they could just walk? They can walk, yes. Yeah. yeah. That has actually created an environment where we've, we've given a very positive, upbeat message, with good reason, because you know, we know we can provide fantastic services looking forward into the future that you know, improve the communities we're living in. Right. That's going to be my next question. What, what do you think is going to be the outcome? Perhaps? Yeah, I think that's, that is a very simple version of the outcome. Um, by the end of the project, which is December 2015, we will be still running with these prototypes. So the, the project will carry on in some shape or form afterwards. We're currently looking at how that will work. We're, we're determined that those three prototypes will evolve into the right shape and form that will perfectly match what the clients and the community need. And we expect their success to attract funding, even in hard times. They will be economical and affordable, and we would expect to get that investment to make sure that the community has their benefit. Great, so we end up with a service that is more accessible, that serves the clients better, but also costs the funders less. Exactly. Well, thanks very much. If people um, hearing this are kind of interested in the project, um, how could they find out more or uh, perhaps get in contact? We anticipated that the project that we were designing could potentially be attractive to other people. We built into the project a lessons learned and a review process that we'd want to publish and make available as some sort of white paper towards the end of it. But in advance of that, I am very happy to give my contact details so that people can contact me and talk through where we are now. But but certainly later on, we expect a piece of work to deliver in a very comprehensive way our approach and what we've delivered and how we've achieved it. Okay. So do you have an an email that you want to...? Yes. uh, My email address is ceo at haventcab, or one word, .org.uk. Okay. And I'll I'll put that in the uh, show notes that go along with the the episode. Well, I, I wish the project and yourself... Success, and I hope these uh, prototypes go well and you adjust and change and it all comes out as, as you projected. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Prime Domino podcast with Rob Worth. Send emails to rob.worth at worthsolutions.com. Read the blog at www.worthsolutions.com forward slash blog and follow Rob's Twitter account at Rob underscore Worth. Subscribe to this podcast by searching for Prime Domino in your favorite podcast provider or click on the iTunes link on any podcast episode page on the website. Remember to request a copy of Rob's book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs by going to www.beatthecuts.co.uk forward slash podcast.